Welcome to the Brave School Podcast. We explore the intersection between entrepreneurship, mysticism, and creative courage through human-centered curiosity and storytelling. This podcast is narrative medicine for the wild-hearted artist and entrepreneur who longs to show all the way up to their creative process. We hope you enjoy. I want to start off this podcast by first saying that I think that it's really important for women, thims, non-binary people, queer people to talk about money openly. And it can feel hard sometimes to listen, in which case take care of yourself Do what you need to do to take care of yourself and your nervous system when people are talking about money. But I I still think it's important for us to talk about. A few days ago, I shared a post that I know probably triggered some people that sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's the only thing that's holding us back is judgment of other people who are making money. And I was reflecting this morning that Also, sometimes it's not even judgment. Sometimes it's not having a frame of reference for what it could look like to actually be sustained or satisfied with your job or your work or to be in relationship with your work in a way that feels fulfilling. It's important for queer, femme, women, people of color to talk about money because we can very easily become the matrix we're trying to leave. We can easily make our dissatisfied, edgy, um, disembodied feelings about money the the new uh, standard for how we should feel about money And enforce that if others aren't feeling this way subconsciously, like this happens subconsciously, uh, enforce that if other people aren't feeling discomfort or the same discomfort you are, then they are somehow morally less in tuned. And that is a slippery slope. Um, It's a slippery slope in regards to money. And I've been there for sure. Um, and it can be a way to, it it can be a way to cope with the hard stories that we have about money and the hard feelings and the bitterness that we have about money. And it's easy. It's an easy story to go to because there are a lot of insidious rich people out there in the world who have money and are using their power and their money to harm and create, um, inequity for people. And it's wrong. And then there are also a lot of people in the world without money who are using their poverty and their state of, of consciousness and um, whether it's consciousness or, or feeling harmed or, or victimized to harm others as well. And so there's a, there is a slippery slope, but also the scales balance on either side and there is no moral authority in regards to who gets to have enough resources and who who doesn't. I think at the end of the day, we can all agree that 
everyone deserves the dignity of having food on their table, a roof over their head, and their lights on. It took me a really long time to believe in that dignity for myself, like really believe in it. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, like without the resources that, you know, maybe some of my peers or counterparts did. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that at first I didn't know that that was like poverty. I thought it was just life. You know, I thought that when you're three years old and you're in a shelter, it doesn't register to you that something bad is happening, right? Um, my mom lost the house and we were in a shelter and my brother and I were playing with toys that were in this shelter for women and their kids and she was looking for jobs and it was a hard situation for her as a single mother. And it, you know, when you have those memories in early childhood, and they're, they're programmed into you, this idea that, you know, just like the lack of resources is a part of your nervous system template. Of course, it's going to feel dissonant and disconnected and disembodying to you to watch people who've had the same or similar experiences as you, or people who've never had that experience, it's going to be disconcerting to watch them succeed. And it may feel and look like jealousy, but sometimes it's not even jealousy. Sometimes it's just, sometimes it's just your brain doesn't even have the, the capacity to conceive or like be able to conceive how possible that is is like you don't have a frame of reference for your own liberation and possibility like the questions of how did they do that like it can't be that easy I've been working hard all my life how did that happen so I just wanted to start off this podcast with that thought that message um, and like, it, just even thinking about it, it just almost brings me to tears because I'm like, it's so real. It's so real. It's so real. This world that we live in, the paradigm and the path to liberation is not just a path to money. It's a path to having control over your resources. That's sovereignty. It's being responsible for yourself and Community, community, community activated sovereignty really only happens when you're surrounded by people who believe in your dignity and your deservingness just as much as you do. And I know from experience that oftentimes when we're living in um, activist communities or activated communities toward justice, the people that we're fighting alongside are fighting because they also don't have access to resources. They are also struggling with poverty. They're also struggling with injustice. And so the cognitive dissonance becomes real and the frame of reference for dignity and the limit to celebration for success becomes real because of that very... Um, mental it's like a cognitive line that you have to cross like you literally have to suspend your belief for what is possible in order to access the fact that it's real so 
Don't beat yourself up. There's some stuff going on on the internet. And I love that this is a conversation and a conversation means that not everybody is saying the same thing. People are sharing their perspectives. There's one aspect of the conversation from a coach I really respect who she was like, well, if you're feeling jealousy of other women, you just miss the assignment. And I want to propose that maybe we didn't miss the assignment. Maybe, or maybe we just just didn't have our frame of reference that there was an assignment to begin with because you're in that pinhole of of templatization and poverty and you can't like you literally have to almost put yourself in into a fantasy you have to believe in what feels like fiction in order to achieve so i just want to start by saying that and sharing that, and just kind of meeting some of y'all where you're at, where I've been. Um, I, I, I'm on the verge of tears, just feeling into this right now, just like the amount of pain and grief in the collective, especially this year, around resources, and it can feel just, it can just feel like liberation is, is not gonna come it can feel like, you know, every other day, not another thing, not another thing, not another thing. Please, not another thing, God. So this podcast is about how I went from eviction and having to sell my stuff to seeing over $13,000 flow through my bank account. And the, the aftermath of eviction lasted many months. It was almost a year of that. Um, but the moment, the moment of liberation was so potent and active for me that it only took three weeks for me to see that money come through. And I didn't even know. I didn't even know until I looked down at my bank statements a month later and was like, oh my God, I earned almost 14 grand this month. I never seen that much money come through my bank account in my life. And when that money was coming through, I was taking care of business. I was taking care of bills. I was like, great, 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 great. I bought a car. I got settled into a new house. You know, I... I didn't, I hadn't had a car, right? I'm going to share in a moment, like kind of my story around that, but I didn't have a car. I was riding a bar- borrowed bike because my bike broke and I was also, just, it was just a hard time. So let me get into it because the moment when I looked down at my bank statements at the end of June, 2020, which is when I saw this, it was like right at the end of 2020. And I was going back to the car dealership because they were like, Hey, we want you to add a little bit more to your down payment just because of your credits where it's at. Um, so they wanted me to pay like a, like a $4,000 down payment. And I was like, fine. So they let me split it up. And I looked down at my bank statements like a month later after I bought my car and was like, Oh my gosh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Like, I can't believe I made this much. What a miracle. 
I felt something in myself that I didn't know was there. I guess I just forgotten it was there. I'd felt it in moments. I felt it in shreds, especially when I was performing. Like when I used to write songs and be a songwriter and, and get on stage and share my music. And I toured a little bit and I did some poetry and all of that good stuff. And I could feel my power, the power of my voice in there. I could feel my capability, my confidence, my leadership, my poeticism, my truth, my willingness. I could feel all of it in those moments. I could feel that my work was viable because when it cut through the, when it cut through the atmosphere and hit a heart, I could feel that. I could feel the tears in the room. I could feel the connection. I could feel the resilience. I could feel the restedness. I could feel my voice. I started my business founding space, my design firm back in 2018. And Back then, I knew that I really wanted to work with multi-passionate entrepreneurs in particular. just had a big passion for multi-passionate entrepreneurs, being one myself, seeing myself with many, many fingers in different pots, tasting everything. What I was skilled in was marketing, positioning, and messaging. That's what I did for my work. I was a marketing director, and I'd been doing that work for years. And I found myself in this role at this nonprofit organization. It was a theater company making um, $2,000 cash a month. There was no raise in sight because everything was grant funded. And they knew that they were underpaying me because they apologized about it when I got the job. Um, But they promised me that if I got some grants or they got some grants, then it would my my cash would increase, basically. My income would increase. But underneath all that were like challenging leadership structures and feeling really lost in the organization and severely underworking and everybody was anxious and on the last thread and I was stressed and it showed. I didn't want to be there. I got to the point after the third production and being yelled at over and over again for things that some things I probably could control and some things I couldn't control. But the fact was being yelled at in a job that you hate is the worst feeling on the place of, it's like one of the worst feelings on the place of the planet because you literally need money to survive and this, you can't just like get up and leave. This place is, you, you're connected to this place on a survival level and there's, and they're not paying you enough to like even save money, um, like enough to actually have, you know, like an adequate savings if you have college debt and you have like a normal rent, like a normal person, which is between six, back then it was like $650 for me and then utilities. And that's over half of what I made per month. So thankfully they let me supplement my income with some consulting work in the earlier days and some photography. And I got, I even got some consulting work through them, but it wasn't, it still wasn't equitable or sustainable for me to be working there. I had to like beg for insurance. It was hard. It was weird. And there was a part of me that really felt guilty about this, like wanting to leave. I felt guilty about wanting to leave this nonprofit organization that I'd spent so much time and invested like my heartfelt energy into. I'd promised to work with this organization for like three years, but I was not expecting the level of anxiety and and stress to be so thick and present in that environment. Um, and I didn't expect the impact that it would have on my mental health. 
So this organization meant a lot to me and it was complicated. But the moment that I decided to open up my consultancy founding space, I knew that this was not about me quitting my job. This wasn't about me quitting my job and moving on to something else. It wasn't about that. It wasn't that simple. This was about finding liberation. This was about learning how to create a working environment for myself where I could thrive and can contribute back to the culture. This was about taking responsibility for how my life was begging for a shift, some goddamn rest and an equitable flow of resources and change. This was about my freedom and my liberation. So the next six months after leaving that job were the most challenging of my career. And I didn't expect that because before I left my job, I I made sure that I had a client that could replace that income. And back then, you couldn't have told me that this was a high ticket client because I was, you know, I was thinking about it from an hourly perspective. I wasn't thinking about it from the big picture perspective, but it was a $2,000 a month, six month close. Like it was you know, and they invited me to work with them. It wasn't the correct invitation for me. It wasn't the right working environment that felt safe in my nervous system. This problem, this, this, this person had a lot of, um, of issues with control and just kind of had a reputation for that kind of thing. And I didn't know about that until I got in and I ended up having to turn back around and be like, wait, I can't work with this person. But it was after I'd already decided to leave. So Starting January, after I'd left my nonprofit job and um, paid all of, you know, paid all this money for equipment, I ended up having to take out a 401k that I opened up at a corporate job and using that to pay my rent for the next few months still wasn't enough. Found myself in a whirlwind of a romantic relationship. If anybody has ever gone through romance while trying to start a business, law Jesus, you know exactly You know exactly what I'm talking about, especially if that person is not the person for you and it's traumatic and they got issues and you got issues and it was just, it was a hot mess. I thought things were going well until I like had to call off this client relationship because it became extremely toxic. My romantic relationship began to feel extremely unsafe on all parts because of our combined circumstances. And I felt myself slip back into cycles of overworking, hustling to keep the lights on, checking all the Facebook groups, getting on freelancer.com, doing all the things, trying to, trying to do all the things, trying to make all the things work. And it just wasn't working. It wasn't working for me. It was really difficult. I mean, I, I got some, I got some four-figure contracts here and there. I got some high-ticket contracts here and there, but they weren't enough because I was still thinking. Um, I was, I was, I was thinking hourly. I was trading my time for money, and I wasn't thinking big enough. I wasn't designing my life to hold the capacity that it needed to hold in order for it to be equitable and sustainable. So from February 2019 until September 2019, I literally could not catch my breath, y'all. My partner and I were forced to part ways because of some abusive things that were going on and my self-confidence just tanked through the floor, completely tanked. I got this part-time job as a barista uh, making $7.35 an hour after promising myself that I would never go back to the food industry. 
I was so freaking sad. I tried everything. I hustled super hard. I showed up in all the places. I was like on the board of the mayor's maker council. I was doing all the impressive things in public, but behind the scenes, I was struggling really, 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 really hard. And I wanted to give, give up. I don't think I even let my friends in on how hard I was struggling. It was too embarrassed. Um, I remember that summer just wanting to keep sinking into the floor and rest and write poetry and grieve. I just wanted to go home. But there wasn't really a real home for me to go back to. There wasn't anywhere that really felt like home except for the place that I was creating for myself because it didn't feel like an option to go and live with my mom. It didn't feel like an option to turn to my dad for help. These weren't places I could necessarily go and feel safe in my body and feel like I wasn't repeating even older patterns um, and older uh, situations of um, just intense environments with memories and traumatic things. You know how it goes when you grow up in a traumatic home life environment. It can be hard to go back to be with parents. So that day, my, there was a day that my landlord texted me. And this was like three days before I was supposed to speak on a panel at the Mayor's Maker, the Maker City Conference on imposter syndrome. I had coffee. I had black beans in my fridge. I had apples. I was not sleeping very well. I was literally working from sun up until sundown. I was doing rituals all the time. I was drinking coffee and drinking beer. And I was just, I was a, I was a mess. Like I thought that these were the dues that were required. Um, (laughs) And like, isn't it funny how watching one episode of Shark Tank, Shark Tank and, and listening to Mark Cuban talk about sleeping on the floor and how he doesn't invest in entrepreneurs who haven't gone through that, like will create this whole story in your head about who's a real entrepreneur who's not. It's like some total bullshit. Like, don't listen to that mess. Okay, don't listen to that. Like, I thought that I had to pay my dues. So I kept charging very little for my work. And... I was just hoping that the universe would give me a break or that my ancestors would give me a break. I literally, one time I did a ritual to just like some little like spell that I found in the back corner, cobwebbed corner of the internet, um, making a, making a ritual, a spell for St. Expeditus, who is like this basically this spirit who's supposed to help you in times of need. And I I walked away from that. I did the spell and then I walked away from it and the spell literally exploded as I was walking away from it. <laughs> it exploded. The plate shattered. Everything shattered. And I remember taking that photo of that spell because I was like, I need, I need at least $6,000 to make it through the end, the end of the year. I need a $6,000 contract, $2,000 a month. This is what I need. And I remember doing that spell and it exploded behind me. And I sent it to a Facebook group full of like black witches and they literally dragged my ass and we're like, St. Expeditus, don't work with black people. You need to talk to your ancestors. <laughs> they dragged me 
they were like, yeah, you deserve it. You don't, don't work with these. Don't, don't work with, no, what are you doing? Work with your ancestors, get connected with your, your guides. Like they're here for you. So I remember that point and I was, that's where I was. That's, that's exactly where I was. I was desperate. I was trying to maintain grace and elegance in public, but behind the scenes, I was falling apart. And then there was the afternoon when my landlord texted me and told me, hey, you have to pay the KUB utilities or I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So I, so I sold my car to pay it. She was like, yeah, by 5 p.m. this needs to be paid um, or you're going to be evicted. So I sold my car that afternoon and paid it. This is like, I'm telling y'all, this is how far, how deep it goes, right? I've I'm not the only person on earth who's who's sold their their precious few goods in order to stay alive, and I did. And then the next day, it was like, well, I can't, you're behind on rent too, and I can't wait anymore for you to catch up. I was like a month and a half behind on rent. And she was like, I'm serving you papers, and you have until this date to leave. And this is like literally right before I was supposed to get on this panel and talk about imposter syndrome. And I felt like a total imposter that day. Like I wasn't making nearly enough to really make it work. I was juggling odd jobs. I was doing little things here and there to try to make it work. I was Also, like I said, I was believing this lie that I had to pay my dues to the industry, to this industry invisible God by charging less than what was equitable and sustainable for my needs. So of course I was overworking and I was under earning at the same time. I couldn't sustain it. I felt like a total imposter. And even though the work that I was doing was good, if I didn't value it, who else would, right? Like the question of this entry, I was having discovery call after discovery call, it was giving away a lot of free advice. Uh, I was literally consulting people for free all day, every day, hoping that it would lead, hoping that it would lead to bigger contracts, hoping that it would prove to people that I was worth every penny, every dime that they spent on hiring me was giving them free advice on positioning and messaging and creating captivating content. Kind of like the content that I created for my nonprofit job back in the day using the frameworks I developed out of, you know, years of, of, of being a, like specializing in this area. And I used it to sell out theater productions. Like I literally used it to help people position to earn the money that I, I wanted to be earning in my business. I was, but I wasn't doing it for myself. And here's the thing. Here's the thing a lot of entrepreneurs feel a lot of shame about and I like, oh, this is like feeling, this is in my throat. It's in the emotions of my throat and you can probably hear it. But we will do amazing work for other people, but not bring that work back home to ourselves. And that is, that, that's the part where it's like, what's going on? There's a leak here. We will do incredible state-of-the-art work for other people, but not bring that same level of care to our work, our businesses, our brands. So I was helping my brick and mortar product-based business clients scale 
And I was at home eating ramen and salt and toast, which that doesn't sound bad, but it's not the kind of ramen that has like other ingredients in it. It was like Marushan, okay? I was helping other people dig deep and get rooted in a earthy, soulful way, reaching literal masses. I had big accounts that I was working for for free. I literally had another entrepreneur tell me, you got to work for free. You got to work for free. And I was like, oh, I have to work for free. Y'all stop telling people this bullshit. Don't do not do that. Like the next time a white woman tells a black femme to work for free, I'm coming for you in your dreams. Like my soul has been known to travel to people in their dreams and get it together, help them get it together. So I'm coming for you. Like, do not be out here telling people they need to work for free in order to position in the market. That's some bullshit. All right. This is causing people to go broke. It's causing people to spiral into brokenness. It's not good. It's not fair. It's not right. Anyway, so during that season, After I got evicted, I didn't know what I was going to do. Then my computer completely crashed. I had to borrow another computer to make it work. I got that $6,000 client, but it was also another client who I, I made it through, but it was not, it was not the right, it was not the right fit for me. It was not the right fit. Whew, y'all. So I held photography and cheap web design contracts to support my dry bank account. I did small jobs, odd jobs, some small social media jobs, some bullshit jobs. It, was, it wasn't great. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fun. It wasn't supportive to my heart. But I had to put my beans on the table, right? I had to put some beans and rice on the table. And it wasn't enough. My body, um, my body didn't like it. There was everything about it was wrong. But when I finally was able to move into a new situation, I finally felt some space to breathe. And that in itself was a miracle. I've talked about that before. One of the things that I feel like really self-conscious about is that people will look at this and say, well, that means that you're like, if you weren't able to do this, that means that you're not a great business strategist. How do you call yourself a strategist if you're not able to keep your business alive? Isn't that what you do? To which I would respond, no, that's not what that's not what I do. I've never called myself a business strategist. Brand strategist is about messaging and positioning and research and content and connection and leveraging those points of connection and access and resonance to build successful brands. That's what brand strategy is. If and brand and as a result of that, yes, my clients did make money. My clients had major wins. But I wasn't having a win, not because I wasn't a good strategist for myself. It was because I had no frame of reference for my liberation. That's the only, I I couldn't see myself. I was too busy looking at how amazing other people were. I couldn't even see myself. I couldn't see myself. So after the eviction and after finding myself in a miraculously safe environment, I went back to the drawing board, 
doing in-depth market research, I gave myself and my business that time. Like, what is, like, I asked the questions, you know, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my business? What's wrong with my positioning? I did do strategy. I call it, I call it slow branding. I did the long, slow process of being in my medicine, being with people, asking questions, dialing in. I did it for months. That's real brand strategy. I dialed in. I market tested my offerings. And in the meantime, like I said, I held photography and and web design contracts while I, I researched my business and my business model. I also did some performing. So I got back on the stage, actually never really left the stage. It was something that I did for fun. Um, I performed my music because when I felt the, when I perform, I feel the fullness of myself. I feel my most expansive self. And I used to think that that was really egoic, but the ego doesn't know how to feel at home. So it couldn't have been egoic. I felt at home because I could actually let myself be heard. My, I, could, I could let myself be myself in front of the eyes of so many people. I had this thing about like wanting to be the same person on stage as I was off stage. Cutting, clear, piercing, deep. And when I was performing, I was able to access that part of myself in an even deeper way. So every time I got on stage, I felt my voice, I felt my story pierce through the crowd and provide nourishment and encouragement. I felt people in tears. I felt people with each other, like just being with in these moments of, of high emotion and just being able to be there together in the story of it all was so they it was like giving myself pieces inches back of my self-confidence I'd lost that year um I also began planning my first month-long tour music tour with another songwriter just for fun a lot of people didn't understand that like a lot of people didn't understand my multidimensionality at the time and they even judged it a little bit like I thought you were doing x why are you doing y and z and I was just like I'm doing this to keep myself alive go mind your own business, right? Like I'm, I'm doing this to learn something about myself. And for some reason, it's also just a very public thing. So, you know, if you don't like it, you don't have to, you don't have to look at me, but I did it. I went on tour for a month and I also joined the circus as a poet. It was a place where I could feel the texture of my voice. I went on tour with them. I got paid for it. Um, and it was that season where like medicine, the medicine, the performance was medicine because I got to taste myself alive. I got to taste myself in my full power. Like my voice is big and I got to taste that about myself. Um, I could taste the departure away from this, these forced moments of smallness where I couldn't yeah, I just couldn't breathe. So it was just a really powerful opportunity for remember, for remembering what I'd forgotten about myself, my piercing power, my voice. So let's fast forward into February 2020 after I get home from tour. I finally made it back home. So this is like 
September 2019 all the way to February 2020. And I finally made it back home after the most expansive five weeks of my life. Like Kelsey and I went through so much on the road together. It was invigorating and living. We ate pickle sandwiches. We learned so much about each other. We learned so much about our voices and, and audiences. And I learned so much about myself as a business owner. I was launching the first iteration of Brave School at that time. And it was really, really cool to see the connections that I was making in the marketplace. Um, it was very clear to me that this was like a beta test. It's like I was market testing this offer. So I didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know what would what it would be like in in the end, but I knew that I had to do it. I priced it really low. It was like $125 for five weeks. And there was a period of time, like three or four days when I was selling it for $5 per person because I wanted to fill the program with more people. And I also wanted to just offer a discount for people who had never really heard of me before. And then I put it back up at 125 for the whole six weeks. And I talked about the things that I knew, storytelling, value proposition, content, and telling compelling stories. And I talked about... I talked about capitalism and I talked about authenticity online. Those were the things I knew. I tend to shy away and especially at that time shied away from talking about money because they weren't really valuable selling points for me yet. Talking about money, even though I was in business and most people go into B to, what is it, C to C no, <laughs> oops, B2B business coaching and all of that and strategy to talk about to like help people make more money. But that wasn't a selling point for me yet. And I hadn't quite aggregated enough data and case studies to make that a compelling selling point, right? So I just talked about the power of storytelling, which I'm very good at. I feel like I love, I love this. I think I'm good at it. And if you're like, oh, you're not very good at it because I'm bored, then Maybe my stories aren't for you. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm not good at it, but maybe I am. And I feel like I am because of the results that I've seen. So at that point, like I had also decided to move to Houston. So I was preparing to make those moves. It was February 2020. So it was right right before COVID started becoming a thing, like a big thing. And I, um, and I was just really f- trying to figure out how I can get back to Houston. While I was there, I, I ran into this man named Brian. Now, Brian and I met at this coffee shop in the Third Ward, which is like one of Houston's hoods. And I was staying in an Airbnb. It was like $19 a night in the Third Ward. And I was in this coffee shop. And he was like, yeah, your vibration compelled me. And I was like, okay, all right. All right, Brian. Um, you were pulled here by my vibration to ask me. And he literally quite asked, quite literally asked me, invited me to what I thought was church, but it was actually more of a meditation space and a movement. And I just declined. And I was just like, no, thank you. I'm not, you know, I'm not really interested in, in, in dating right now. I'm not interested in seeing people well, like, like that while I'm in town. Um, I had a, like a fling or one or two, like a fling while I was in Houston, but it wasn't like a, I'm not looking for, you know, a boyfriend. And 
what I didn't know at that point, because Brian was a catalyst, and that's the only reason why I'm telling you about Brian was a freaking catalyst for me in the softest way possible. I didn't know that meeting Brian would be a portal for me. This man was connected to someone that another friend was trying to set me up in town with who just happened to be one of my favorite curators in Chicago. And she was in town in Houston for the week. And apparently Brian and her kids played together. Her name was Janice Bond. Janice Bond was also the mentor of my favorite photographer, Dion Ivory. And apparently Dion Ivory, who I worshipped, I worshipped her and Lauren Ash for literal years because I'd never seen black women go hard after their wellness the way that I had watched these women do over the years. I'd never seen that before. Black Girl and Om changed my life, right? And Lauren, if you're listening to this, I love you. I love you. Thank you for saving my life. I didn't know that Dion had been just like last Tuesday, been sitting in the seat that I was sitting in until after I finally gave in when I realized, oh, this man isn't asking me on a date. He literally just feels compelled by spirit to invite me into a moment where I could alter my frame of reference for what was available to me as a black, queer, femme, dreamspent, sold out, creative entrepreneur, broke, trying to figure out, figure it out on the ground. He wasn't inviting me on a date. This man, I mean, he was at first, but really he was just listening to his, in, in his intuition and he was compelled. So I, I think about him often and how he humorously saw past my facade and my polite decline and, 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 and saw me. He really saw me through that moment. And we became like brother and sister. Like by the end of, you know, the weekend, I was like, you're my brother. Like we, like, you're my brother. There's, this is, this is, I didn't know that this was possible. This man had, well, he was like a photographer and he, he also was an artist and a philosopher. Um, and, and he showed me just like how deep this art scene was for Houston and Knoxville. We don't have a lot of black artists and entrepreneurs here. So I don't like, it's very easy to be tokenized in Knoxville if you're a black, uh, driven, creative person and not be paid for your labor. In Houston, there were black, successful people, creative people everywhere who were doing it all on their own terms. And I'd never seen that before. I didn't know that it was actually real. I'd seen it online. I'd seen it on Instagram, but I didn't know it was real. And so Brian invited me to just look to look at what was possible for me. And by the end of that trip, I realized, you know, I have to move to Houston. I got to change my location, got to change, change my environment. But of course, because it was right at the cusp of COVID things happening, COVID hit, my plane ticket got whisked up into the COVID skies. And I, just like the rest of the world, was shuffling to figure out, okay, how do we orient in this? How do we dig deep into this? So I moved three times in, in three weeks. I think it was like three and a half to four weeks. It was like a month, three total times. And I found myself by the hair of a miracle cozied up inside of this rented camper that also became a catalyst for me going from evicted and poor and broke and, and, and not 
like knowing what was next and giving away my labor for free to being in this camper, like being able to secure contracts with people I loved and respected people literally four months ago after I'd completed my research for my business. I was like, these are the people that I want to be working with, literally wrote their names down and then watched myself get oriented into relationships with them. Ariel Fry, I wanted to work with Ariel Fry back Back in 2019, her work was inspiring me. Um, her story inspired me. She rose up from the food industry and she like became a millionaire through holding space for women to see how valuable and dignified they are. Um, Citizen Well and Carrie Kelly standing at the, the, the crux of activism and wellness at the time I was just like so enthralled with her work. Some of the conversations she was having were conversations that I was thirsty for. Um, Maria Majayi was another client of mine. Eliana Costanza, um, just all of these people I found myself in relationship with and in client relationship with them. And Still, I was still in that pattern, though, of not quite charging equitably for my time and labor. I was getting closer, but no cigar. It still wasn't, I still wasn't making quite enough a month to really hold my energy in a healthy, sustainable container and also, um, yeah, also be paid equitably. So... There was still more in me to face in this in this situation. Like I, I was so close, right? I felt it. I felt it in my body. I felt it in my bones. Like I was able to find a place to live with a new roommate. I got approved somehow, um, and we were set to move six weeks after I moved into this camper and went through some of the most transformational work of my life. We were set to move into this house, this brick and mortar home with closable windows that you could lock with a door with a real lock on it and and wood floors and like just just fantasizing about this all day long. I was hungry for a space that I could call my own since being evicted. It was like the biggest desire of my life. And I was so close. It was like a literally a like literally a week to the date away from that moment when my camper flooded with black water solution that contains formaldehyde and black water solution is like the black water tank that like it's it's like plumbing stuff and the solution contained formaldehyde. So I my the people who were letting me rent the camper were like, yeah, you can't stay here. You know, we can't be responsible for you dying because of breathing in formaldehyde. This has to dry before you can sleep in here. So it took about a week for that to dry. And at that point, I I was paying so many things off. I was paying so much debt that I literally had only enough for my deposit. And that was, it. I like barely had enough for my deposit. And I felt like I called a couple of friends and got a few no's. And like, people were like, no, you can't. I'm sorry. Like I have no capacity. I have no space. I don't have bandwidth. And I felt that. And I felt like 
you know, I felt really needy. I felt like I was asking for too much. I felt like, you know, not another thing. Um, and I felt like I was having to choose, which was really difficult. I was having to choose between not having enough for my rent and having to get a hotel or an Airbnb, like the Airbnbs and hotels at that time on that particular day were priced out of the wazoo. It was, it was a lot like, you know, paying for an Uber to get there. And I just remember being on that front porch and doing my work on their front porch. I mean, and just feeling lost and hearing no's everywhere. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. I went for a bike ride after I closed up my client work um, for that day after, you know, gathering my stuff on the porch and I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't have any resources. My mom didn't have resources. Um, I actually didn't even call her because we got into an argument that morning. It was just, it was, I mean, it was a hard day. And the nuances of that conversation are not really something I feel comfortable sharing, but it was just really traumatic. It was a traumatic time and it didn't feel safe. And I sort of, in that moment, lost my faith in the idea of raise your vibration manifestation because it, it kind of felt like for me, um, you know, when you when you get into a car that you have to crank up and you have to like sort of stay with the car while it's cranking up, it's like revving up and almost getting there and you just kind of have to keep like pressing, you know, whatever pedal you're pressing while it cranks up and hopes that it turns on. That's what it felt like. That's what raise your vibration felt like. Um, so the only thing that I had even a thread of, of connection to was just my deservingness, which took me a long time to get to. I knew in that moment when I had biked, um, and also all the stuff was going on in the world, like Black Lives Matter had just started popping off again. People were setting buildings on fire and like people were protesting and things were going and like the whole internet was on fire. And I was just like, how could anybody care about my situation right now when the whole world is on fire? And I did that like thing again where I was putting everybody else's needs first. And I felt like a burden for having my own. And I felt like, you know, I deserved, like there was a part of me that was like, yeah, you deserve to not have help because you've been struggling for so long. And then there was another part of me that was like, no, you deserve viable, sustainable and progressive living wage. You deserve a roof over your head. You deserve food enough to eat. You deserve to have clients that treat you with respect. You deserve to be treated with dignity and honor and respect, especially from your white clients, Dajé. Like, you deserve this. And that is a non-compute. So I, um, it was like by, it was like a miracle. Like I, you know, I told my client, it was Carrie Kelly at the time. Shout out to Carrie. I will never forget this moment. Um, I just basically, you know, told her, hey, I'm in 
I'm in a kind of a hard situation where I'm trying to figure out some, uh, some things today. So I'm not going to be available much like my camper flooded and I'm having to figure out my situation. And she just texts me. I didn't tell her more than that. And she just texts me and she's like, do you need help? Like, do you need, do you have a place to stay right now? And I was just honest with her. And I was like, I don't have anything. I I don't have any place to stay. I don't know what I'm doing. I I don't know what's next. And I'm having to make some hard decisions right now. It started raining outside and I, you know, started getting dark and my stuff was still outside and it was just a hard situation. It was a hard situation. I never, never imagined myself being in that situation ever in my life, especially, especially like I just never imagined myself being, being there. Um, I'd done everything I could to do. I knew to do to be and take responsibility for my life. And sometimes still things still don't work. And the reason why I'm sharing this story is because I know that some of you out there, some of you who are listening to this, need to hear this story. You need to hear that you're not alone. And you need to hear that there's another perspective um, to stop shaming yourself for doing everything that you can and resting in the knowledge of your deservingness holding out for your deservingness because we do not live in a fair world. We do not live in a world that gives everything to everybody. We do not live in a world where resources are distributed equitably. Unfortunately, we we do have to like we have to work with this world that we're living in, but I want you to know that like it doesn't have to be as hard as I made it. It doesn't have you like learn from my hard headedness and stubbornness. It doesn't have to be as hard as maybe you've made it. Maybe you've been in worse, right? And so that evening, it was a miracle. And I found myself at the Holiday Inn. I'd Ubered there and it was a $6 Uber. And I found myself safe for the night and then waking up the next morning I looked in the mirror and I saw myself in a full length mirror for the first time, probably over a month because in my camper, I didn't really have a mirror and I saw that I'd lost a lot of weight and I looked really, really small. And that was really interesting to me. And it just sort of played into this hunger narrative that I had. Um, I went back home. I felt a lot of frustration. I had client work to attend to that morning. I had no emotional bandwidth and capacity. Um, Yeah, the people I thought were going to be there for me, especially my father, like weren't. And, you know, that was a pattern that continued to carry over. Just I had to be the one to take care of my needs and also to take care of other people's needs. And that was a story that was repeating itself over and over and over. But then what came back again was this thread of no Daje. You, you're deserving. You are deserving of a viable, sustainable and progressive living wage. You are deserving of a roof over your head You are deserving of being in relationships that let you feel safe and seen and heard and known. 
You are deserving of having food, healthy food on your table, having more than enough that you need to survive even through the darkest winters. You are deserving of having enough. And it was that moment where I was like feeling this, this catalytic anger in my body. Um, and at the same time, I was also feeling this like magnetized connection. It was like I could see the other as myself. I could see, I could see our human connection. And I wrote this post about oneness. I was seeing stuff happening online. I was having to respond to it because of my work with Citizen Well through social media. And I was just seeing it. I was seeing it and it was angering to me. It lit my veins on fire. And like almost 3,000 people, like it went viral, almost 3,000 people saw that post and they liked it and they shared it and it got shared on Yoga Journal and all of these other places that I never thought would ever see my work in the world. And it was all about that, that deservingness. That we all deserve access to equity and resources. We all deserve a viable, sustainable, progressive, living wage. And that no person on earth has the right to determine how abundant or not abundant another person can be. No one, no one has the right to dictate how little someone else deserves to earn. No one has the right to dictate how much food goes into someone else's fridge. No one has the right to dictate that. No one. And we live in these structures that say the opposite. That say that your clout makes you more deserving of resources than another person. That your race makes you more deserving. Your beauty makes you more deserving of resources than another person. And that is just a load of bullshit. It's a load of bullshit, y'all. That your years in college make you more deserving of equitable and sustainable resources than another. And it's a load of bullshit. It's lies. This is not not the way of, of, of mother nature. This is not the way of earth. This is, that is not the way the universe rolls on any level. Just like literally go outside for five minutes and tell me how earth rolls. Don't look at people. Look at earth. How does she roll? Does she, does she hold back the heavens from the grass, the weeds, the trees, the animals? Not if she can help it. No. No. And I was so angry. I remember feeling so angry. 
And I think I had maybe a thousand of you at least flood through my inboxes and tell me. I was so overwhelmed by so like so many messages, more messages than I think I'd ever received in my life. It was at, at the very least hundreds of you. And, and many of you sent me Venmo and sent me Cash App and bought me lunch and bought me coffee. I'm not going to lie. I used all of that to buy myself a bed. I bought myself, you know, <laughs> I put food in my fridge. I paid my deposit for my house. Like y'all didn't know what I was going through. Everyone is deserving, every single person on earth. So when, I'm, when I talk about what happened the following three weeks, because that afternoon I, I, I wrote that and I still had to muster up the courage to keep reaching out to people for help. I didn't know what else to do. Um... I reached out to three black femmes. I was crying and I felt so embarrassed for being in my situation. I felt so ashamed. And they helped me feel so safe. They didn't know I was going through that. <laughs> They showed me what it means to be one as a collective. They upheld my dignity and my truth and my deservingness. So even though I had lost faith in manifestation, I had not lost faith in my deservingness and dignity and neither had they. That deservingness of dignity and wellness and safety became my last thread of hope. As a human, my connection to earth, to sky, to the heavens, my ancestors, all that is was my last hope. I just had to remember, you know, and believe in that in order to ask for help. I had to believe that I deserved safety in order to ask for help. And they put me up in a hotel, a really fancy hotel, the Crown Plaza, for three days. I didn't know that was going to happen. I was content to sleep on a floor until I can get into my own space and sleep on my own floor. They didn't judge me. They just upheld my dignity. I remember waking up in that clean white sheet bed and the air smelled so crisp and clean. There was no slight must of, like, the camper that I was living in, which I sort of embraced, you know. It was just crisp air. 
and they offered to buy me groceries. <sighs> and I didn't accept because I couldn't contain any more help. Like, I was full. I was full. I had a place to sleep. I felt like I was waking up in a dream. <laughs> While the world was literally being lit on fire and protests were going on outside of my window, like, I felt safe. I felt safe for the first time in a long time. I didn't get to... $13,000 that month by thinking about trying to earn a five-figure month and trying to manifest a five-figure month. I worked the least in that month, I think, that I've ever worked in my entire adult life. I was so tired by the time I made it to that house, that new house that I was living in. I was so tired and relieved. I just sank into the wood floor alone with my blankets, my plants that I'd brought from my camper. I just sank and danced inside of that house. And drank water from the faucet. It just. I felt like I was in a dream. I finally felt safe. I meditated. I gave thanks for the little things that week. The very little things like my PPP loan finally got approved. But then like all of these resources started coming in and like within five days of moving in that house, I looked up and I was like, I can buy a car. I can put down, I mean, I knew I couldn't buy a car cash, but I needed to get some wheels because the bike that I was riding was borrowed from someone that I really needed to get it back to. I mean, they weren't using it, but like. I wanted I wanted to kind of close that relationship a little bit and so I went and I bought my Mazda 3. It was a used car and it was exactly the car that I had been dreaming of, like a white hatchback car. That's what I wanted. It was the car I saw myself driving for months. That's what I wanted. And I looked online, the dealership didn't have those cars, but I got there and they had. So I walked away that day with a white Mazda and it was kind of a miracle that they let me walk away with it. I had to show my bank statements from the last three to four months and that was embarrassing and they, but they celebrated my little come up 
I still hadn't made it close to $10,000 yet at that point. I think I was at, yeah, somewhere around two to 3000 a month. And yeah. And I slept a lot that week. I, I rested. Uh, an internet friend bought me a bed. <laughs> um, they asked me what I needed. And they were like, yeah, I'm going to buy you a bed. This is what we can afford. And they just Venmoed it to me. And the bed came in two days later from Amazon. And I'm still sleeping on that bed today. And I did, I did like the bare minimum of client. I showed up and I did my client work. And then I worked very, very, very little. Did very, I just rested deeply, rested my body lit my candles, meditated, rested my body. And then it came time for me to launch Building Brave. I had been putting it off. I was Building Brave for the summertime. Had a lot of good insights and data from the previous season, and I was excited to launch it again in summer. And I was scared. Um... You know when you get an influx of followers and all of a sudden you're like, I don't have anything to say anymore. <laughs> I was going through that experience of like, I don't have anything to say right now. I don't know really what to say. I said the things that I felt and then I pretty much stayed offline as much as I could other than what I had to do for my, my work. Um, and I slept a lot. And I dreamed and I planned like with fantasy involved. Like I, I imagined a lot when I, when I say I planned, I imagined and I slept and, and I imagined and I tasted the concept of deeper liberation. And I went to Ikea and bought drapes. I bought velvet drapes for my windows and they looked incredible. I bought some plants. I just, snuggled up on the rug, I read books, and I felt safe. I ate fruit and salads, and I felt safe. And I dug into my safety, and I continued holding myself. And then the client project started coming in, and the income started coming in. And, you know, people probably say, you know, it's like somatic, and there's magic involved, and all this stuff, like you were attracted, blah, blah, blah. And people are attracted to your vibration and blah, 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 blah. And that's probably already, that's all probably true. It's probably manifested it. But more than anything, I focused on the feeling of safety and pleasure in the process. Not consciously, not trying hard to focus on my, my pleasure and my rest. I just sank into it. And did only what was required. That's how, when I looked up at the end of June, wow, $13,000 in my bank account. Over $13,000. And more was coming through. Like, I think that Friday was another, like, $1,200 and another $800. And, like, the money was just coming in. And... I was earning it, but I wasn't breaking my back for it for the first time in a long, long time. 
I was positioning myself in the market. I was doing all the things that I, I teach other people do, to do. But the energy of struggle wasn't behind it. The intensity behind doing my work, like that energy of I have to do this so that X, Y, and happen and blah, 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 and X, Y, and Z, that wasn't there for me. It was just let me find the space and capacity to do these four things and do my due diligence and give people the information that they need to make the decisions they need to make. That was it for me. I did what was required. I didn't over talk. It like there was a there were two web design clients that came through that was just like y'all have been waiting to work with me for six months. That's cool. All right, let's go. And those were like at the time I was charging four thousand five hundred for web design, and then another like social media like a short term social media launch strategy client came through, and that was like another twelve hundred dollars. And I was like, cool. Like that's an easy. That's an easy like $7,000, close to $7,000 right there. Great. And all those are payment plans. And then there was also like Building Brave. I, I launched it in the summertime. And back then it was a three-month $500 thing. And those are payment plans. And some of them were paid in full. And it was like, great. This is great. I just didn't know this, that it was $10,000 or $13,000 until the end of the month. And that flowed over into the next month and the next month. And I started to actually finally feel myself begin to rise. And by the winter time, I had hit my first $20,000 month. And I will be honest and say that after that winter, I haven't hit $20,000 since of you know, I've come close, but it's not quite been that much since. But I know that I could do it again. Why? Because of my deservingness. And, and I don't have to justify how much I'm making to anyone. I don't have to prove why I'm worth it to anyone. My work proves itself. My clients, my testimonials, the results, they prove themselves. The people who do do the work um, that they're invited to do, which is usually just like very simple steps. And sometimes we have to find the safety in our body to make those very simple steps because we don't have a frame of reference yet. That's usually what happens. when people are struggling to make it through a course or a group program or a membership, usually it's just because they don't have a frame of reference for how this is going to work for them. It hasn't clicked yet. Or it just doesn't feel good in their bodies. And so they haven't given themselves the permission to find another way in. That's the, that's the Aquarian in me. I'm like, I'm just going to find another way into this. And I did. And you can, we can. But my way wasn't through pushing and, and forcing myself. My way had to come through 
my inherent deservingness to be fed. Period. I deserve. I deserve. I hope this served you. Reach out to me. Let me know at the story doula if it did, if it served you. Um, yes, also, Building Brave is open enrollment. You can join anytime. I'll put the link in the show notes. If you want to join a container full of fins, powerful entrepreneurs, creatives all over the world who are learning how to do things their own way, using very strategic principles and tools that I just put on the table and invite you to consider, invite you to utilize them for yourself, the positioning, the messaging, the content, the strategy. If you want to try and pick up these tools and try them on, if you want a place where you can begin to experience a sense of safety in yourself, a sense of deservingness, I think more than anything, that's that's most of what I have to offer is the, the fact that you're deserving. It doesn't matter. You can use my program. You can use Melanie's, whoever's program, anybody. You can use anybody's program and it wouldn't matter if you don't feel deserving, period. Period. It's not about how hard you go. Get Mark Cuban's words out of your mind. It's not about how hard you go. Do you feel deserving of access to viable, sustainable, living wages and resources without having to pay your dues or prove that you're worth it? So if you want a place to explore that question, join us in Building Brave, open for enrollment. You can just purchase a seasonal membership or you can come in and have access to all of the materials for the rest of your life and all of the updates to them. I update often because the information needs to be updated pretty often because the market shifts so intensely these days so come in come on in and be a part of this place this space and time where people are figuring out how to be brave with their work in the world i love you never at ease i don't know a limit chasing the dream i don't know what sleep i got a queen she let me to eat it she break like a peach and she snappy to snip it well overdue for that link up in person. Text me to fall through a spider, she wrote it. Sit up with courage, you're doing a service. Pull up to the crib, I'm equipped with the best strokes. Cut throat for the low, low, when no love goes. When you buddy, buddy, like it's been that way. We look in the field side, buddy, buddy, I'm stressed out. Thank you so much for listening to the Brave School Podcast. You can find us on the internet at braveschool.co. You can also find us on Instagram at braveschool.co and find me, your resident story doula at the story doula on Instagram. I'm so excited to serve you. Thank you for being here, friend.